Good morning, brisk morning, but um, you're here. I'm glad. I was thinking as we uh, were singing that song, such a beautiful song and declaring the holiness of God. But I like that part where we join in with all of creation, you know, in singing. It's like all, all of creation just honoring God. And I was, it, my mind just started going with what I'm seeing in creation right now. And, you know, one of the cool things about winter in Iowa is it's the one time you get to see those sun dogs, you know what I'm talking about, like on either side of the sun. And they're just glorious. You know, you can't get that kind of stuff without also putting up with the cold and the winter and all that. But there's something glorious about that. And so all of a sudden that image came up as I'm like, yeah, joining with all creation. And I know you got to get really cold to see sun dogs, but work with me. It's, it's worth it, right? Um, here's the deal. We've got a little bit of a a tough go in Hebrews 10. We're, we're going to have to roll up our sleeves a little bit in Hebrews 10. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, I want you to join me there. I want to guide us through what I think is some really important truth that God has for us here in this chapter. If you've um, been with us, you know we have been going through the book of Hebrews and took a little bit of a hiatus uh, through Christmas and the holidays there, a little bit of a break. Uh, now we're jumping back in. We'll finish off. If you're new to Veritas, um, you're jumping in kind of midstream. You can catch up by going back and listening to the messages, but this is actually a pretty good break. Um, I, I think you're going to be able to catch up very quickly, even if you're jumping into the series right now. But as we do uh, jump into it this morning, got a little bit of a trivia quiz for you, all right? So I've got these three names. I want you to see if you can figure out what they have in common, all right? Here are the three names. Philippe Le Picard from France, Al Jawari from Turkey, and Samuel Langley from Pittsburgh. All right. Now, you probably are like, oh, wait, I remember those. I'm sure you do. Right? Philippe Le Picard from France to Al Jawari, Turkey, Samuel Langley from Pittsburgh. You know what they all have in common? Okay, two things. One, None of you in this room have ever heard of any of those people, okay? So that's one thing that is true about those three. But here's the thing. They have all attempted and failed, some of them miserably, at inventing a flying machine, at being the first ones to get man to fly. And if you've ever seen old like footage or pictures of some of the miserable failures, they're represented in, in that list, among others. But here's the deal. So there's the failures. But when I say the Wright brothers, right? When I say the Wright brothers, virtually everybody in this room is going to be able to, oh yeah, they're the first ones that actually invented the flying machine, which would become the airplane, which would literally change the world, right? So some of you are so familiar with them that you could even tell me where that eventful flight took place. Where'd that, where'd that take place? Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Anybody remember the year? 1903, really close, 1903. So I'm just saying it's so memorable that almost 120 years later, you can remember not only their names, where they did that flight. They weren't even from there. They found that special place in 1903. Anyway, here's my question. What kept Wilbur and Orville Wright going for years, like persevering through hundreds of their own failures Seeing the landscape literally littered with people who tried and failed at doing what they were attempting to do, what kept them going? And this is going to sound maybe a little bit cliche, overly simplistic, but I want you to work with me on this. They kept their eyes on the finish line. 
Okay, this is not just some motivational talk, okay, but I'm just telling you, like, maybe overly simplistic, but they kept their eye on the finishing line. They wanted that reward. They understood the cost. They saw the failures. They wanted the reward of not just starting something, but finishing something. Not, not just starting off, we're going to try some, oh, failures, oh, I give up. No, no, no. They had their eye on the finish line of being able to hit that reward, and it motivated them to keep going. So here's the deal, guys. A lot of people start stuff, Right? I'm surrounded by people. You've got somebody up here who starts stuff, but some failures, some setbacks quickly cause you to give up, right? Turn back. When it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to our spiritual lives, Jesus wants to teach us something very, very powerful. Our focus has to be on the finish line, not the starting line. And I want you to, Work with me on that. And again, I know that might sound cliche, simplistic. But man, it is true. And in fact, it is so true, this idea that we've got to keep our focus on the finish line, not the starting line. It's so true that Jesus is afraid we're going to miss it somehow. So he's not only going to introduce that idea here in Hebrews 10, we're going to spend the next weeks going through Hebrews 11, where he's going to give illustration after illustration after illustration of how true that is by showing you the kind of people that kept their eye on the finishing line, not the starting line. And he's going to work with We're going to spend about five weeks, you guys, wrapped around this basic theme. In fact, if, if you've got your Bible open, go over to Hebrews chapter 12, because after going through all those beautiful illustrations to illustrate the point we're going to highlight this morning, look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How how do we run with endurance? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Like he's at the finish line. He's on the other end. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before me endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Those verses, the first couple of verses there of chapter 12, are actually kind of a summary of everything that's going to sweep us to those verses through chapter 11, and that's what we're going to be introduced to this morning. So here's the deal. We're going to get to those epic stories and those amazing verses in Hebrews chapter 12. But we're going to start with a sobering, sobering text, but a really needed text of scripture. We're going to get to the encouraging, like put the carrot out in front of us to move forward verses. We're going to get there. But today he's going to start with a little bit of the harsh reality that's also to motivate us to move forward. So I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. I want to read the first few verses of this passage And then we're going to see how it fits with this overall flow of what he's going to be doing for us. Here's what he says. Verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of of two or three witnesses, how much more punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted 
the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. All right, so I want us to stay focused on the finish line. And here's what I think is the first point and the point that this particular passage brings out. To keep focus on the finish line, you should fear God. And just so that I'm not mistaken, no, really, you should be afraid of God. (laughs) I put that parenthetic thought there to qualify that because here's what we do sometimes when we talk about the fear of God among Christians is you you hear about verses like Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what we want to do is kind of water that down a little bit. So I'll hear Christians say, well, the fear of God doesn't mean that we should be afraid of God. It means we should be in awe of God or reverence of God or that kind of thing, right? We want to kind of back off fear of God and make it something a little bit lighter. Well, that, there might be some truth to that, okay? There might be some truth to the fact that fear of God can be an awe and a, and a reverence. But here's what I'm saying. When you look at Hebrews 10, it is almost impossible to read through that section of scripture that I just read and get worship, reverence, and awe. <laughs> you know what you get? Being afraid of God. He uses the word terrifying twice, right? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In fact, look again at verse 27. It is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. (laughs) He's talking about fire and stuff like that, right? So this is not just being in reverence and all. This is to be afraid of God. And I'm telling you, the first thing that he wants us to embrace, if we're going to persevere, if we're going to hit that finish line, it's we actually should be afraid of God. Now, parents, I want to talk to you for a moment, because I think you can relate to this. I don't know how many of you parents have ever lived near or maybe been at a park near a really busy street, and you wanted for sure that your children know that they cannot run out into that street, right? So what do you do? You tell them what could happen to them if they should run out into that busy street, right? You set the fear of that street in them. Why? Because you're a loving parent, In fact, you might even use really terrifying words to describe what happens to people and what they look like after they've run into a busy street, right? You might get really scary looks from your kids, but why? Because you're loving. It's not because you're just playing with them, messing with them. It's because a loving parent realizes they've got a vulnerable child and it's true what they're telling them, right? It's true, That is what happens to people when they run out into a busy street. And I'm being loving to try to warn you about, hey, be careful. That's what happens. This is what it looks like. All right. So I believe that's the loving impulse that's going on with the author of Hebrews as he's looking to these people and in desperation saying, you need to understand what is true about the fear of God. So there's some important clues, I think, right here that are going to help us to understand even, even more specifically what he's saying and maybe what he's not saying, what, what you might think he's saying that he's not. So let's, let's look at a few of these. He says right there in verse 26, these are people who deliberately go on sinning. These are people who in a high-handed way, a bold way, an ongoing way, are sinning and in your face kind of sin, deliberately sinning, like shaking your fist in the face of God kind of sinning. That's the kind of sinning that he's describing here. He's saying it's after they've received the knowledge of the truth. These guys are not ignorant of what they're doing. They know full well 
what they are doing, the sin that they are, are committing. They have complete awareness of truth and they're doing it anyway. And look at that, that scary word at the end of the verse I just read, adversaries. They set themselves up as enemies of God. They oppose God. It's not just that they're doing something that they hope God won't see. No, no, no. They don't care what God sees. They are in a high-handed way, setting themselves adversarially against God. And here's a really important part of who these, the profile of who these people are that he's describing. They used to be part of God's church. So that might not be as, as um, apparent right here, but look at the verses that just immediately precede these. The verses just above these, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. You get the idea, unfortunate little break there. You get the idea that these were people that used to be in that gathering of people and no more. They, they've gone out. They've received the knowledge of the truth and now they reject it outright. More set out to fight against God, fight against his truth. In fact, look again at verse 29. I just need you to have these kind of scary words resonating in your soul. Listen to the description, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the son of God, right? This is bold language. These are people who understand exactly who Jesus is and they're saying, no, I'm gonna trample on the son of God, regard as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, insulting the spirit of grace. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is rather than being bold and high handed and, you know, adversarial against God, these guys should be terrified. They should be terrified that they're fighting against the God of the universe the God who has loved them so much as to shed his blood for them that now they're just trampling underfoot, right? They should be afraid of God. Now, I want us to have in the background of our minds what is true about people who truly know God, that they are secure and they don't actually live under this kind of fear of God. In fact, man, just this last week, we spent several days as, as a staff team, just in the word and worshiping together. It was beautiful. But one of the mornings, uh, Coach Dermody brought up Psalm 34, and that, that just got me, man, leaning into Psalm 34. And the very last verse of that, uh, of that Psalm says this, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. What a beautiful verse. Those who are the redeemed, those who have been, you know, rescued, we know that God is going to hold on to us, right? There is verse uh, Romans 8, 1, there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 10, we have Jesus giving us this beautiful promise. Like I know my sheep, they know me and I have them in the palm of my hand and no one will ever snatch them out of the palm of my hand. Why do I bring up all those promises? Because they also are boldly in the scripture. And what I'm telling you is what I think the author of Hebrews is talking about is not a secure, true child of God. He's describing instead a Judas. I believe Hebrews 10 is describing a Judas, someone who looked like a genuine follower of Christ, had everyone fooled, everyone around them fooled. But I'm telling you, Judas himself knew exactly who he was 
and what he believed and what he was doing. Does that make sense? One of the most clear examples of this comes from John chapter 12. I won't have you turn to it. I'm just going to read it for you. Because in John 12, here's this incredible story. It's where uh, Mary, uh, the sinful Mary, comes in and wants to worship Jesus. So Mary takes a, a, a pound of perfume, pure and expensive, anoints Jesus' hair, or Jesus' feet, wipes his feet with her hair. House is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Remember that moment where Mary comes in and just shatters this, you know, expensive thing of perfume, and it's this beautiful moment. So here's what John tells us also happened in that moment. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, right, because John's writing after the fact, he's like, hey, watch this guy, because this is the guy who's going to betray Jesus. At that moment, as this beautiful expression of worship is going on, Judas Iscariot said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Well, guys, when he said that, a lot of the disciples were like, oh, man, yeah, he's so good. He's so nice. He always is thinking about the poor, right? That's what everybody around was thinking. But John helps us understand, oh, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it, right? That's what was true of Judas. Judas knew the whole time. Even if everybody else was fooled, Judas knew the whole time what was really true of his soul. Guys, Hebrews is describing here in Hebrews 10, a Judas. Someone who is deliberately sinning. After they actually know what's true, they deliberately sin high-handedly. They set themselves up actually in a Judas kind of way to oppose Jesus. He is not describing just a weak believer or a believer who has sinned right? He's not describing just true believers who sin. We know what he thinks about those. In fact, if you get your Bible, go back to chapter four. The, the whole book of Hebrews is replete with these, but I want to point to verse 15 and 16 of, of Hebrews four. He says this, man, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of Jesus that we have. Guys, I just need you to hear me. God does not expect perfection from his people. He sets himself up as that merciful high priest to welcome us, to bring forgiveness to us. We have the whole Bible just... So many examples. The Apostle Peter himself, who started the whole church, you know, blowing it time and again and being welcomed back and, and, and set back, you know, square to, to continue to represent him. The thief on the cross who spent his whole life rejecting Jesus, but in that last moment sincerely reached out and today you'll be with me in paradise, right? Saul, who became Paul, right? We've got just example after example of people that found crazy forgiveness The author is not describing unbelief, doubt, even weakness, turning back for a season. Hear me out. He is describing a settled place of someone who has fully understood the gospel, even walking around with true believers who have embraced the gospel, looking exactly like everybody else, but then abandons Jesus and more despises Jesus, profanes Jesus and trashes Jesus. Jesus stomping. I mean, what, what kind of language stomping on Jesus under their feet? So I just want to say in this moment, 
Guys, before we go on to some more hope-filled verses, guys, if you're here and you know for sure that everybody else is fooled into thinking that you're a genuine follower of Christ, but you actually know in your heart of hearts that that's not true, if you are here and are putting on this, this charade, going through the motions and, and pulling it off, really fooling everybody else, but you're on this dangerous path of getting the point of, of kind of getting tired of the charade and you're about ready to just bolt and trash Jesus and trash the gospel. Let me, this warning is actually for you. This warning is to say, you should be afraid of that decision. You should be terrified of rejecting what you know to be true, but you have refused to embrace. Playing the role, playing the part, kind of going along with it, but actually refusing to actually embrace Jesus Christ. This warning that's going out is to plead with you to join those who actually were on a reckless path of unbelief, but stopped, repented, and came to know Jesus, the faithful high priest who will offer forgiveness. This is your moment. Don't follow those who used to be here and are now spurning God, spurning Jesus, and have abandoned us and Jesus. Don't go. So he wants rightly for there to be a fear of God in that but he also wants to strengthen the faith of those who are terrified about that whole thing happening, about people who used to be here and aren't anymore, and, it, and it's wigging them out. So now what he wants to do is give them hope, and hopefully many of us in this room, a whole bunch of hope. So the next thing he's going to say is to keep focused on the finish line. Occasionally, you should look in the rearview mirror, okay? Here's what he says. Look at verse 32. Remember, he says, the earlier days when you had been enlightened, when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward. I love that, that very first word, remember. Because yeah, I know that that's true, that there are people who have spurned Jesus, have, have rejected him and us, everything. But I want you to keep your focus. Keep your focus. Don't, don't look at them. Don't look at them. Keep looking at the finish line. Keep looking to Jesus and remember those earlier days. Now, here's the deal. The way he describes their earlier days, man, it'd be hard for us to swap notes with the believers in the first century <laughs> that lived lives like this, right? Like, I'm like, oh, totally. I remember having everything confiscated and getting thrown in jail. Totally. Yeah, I get it. No, I mean, few of us in this room have experienced anything even close to the experience of what these believers actually had encountered. But I want you to actually think about your earlier days. Still go through this practice. He's saying, remember your earlier days. Guys, remember when you were, I love that word, enlightened. Do you remember that? Do you remember when finally the light went on and you realized who Jesus was? The truth of the gospel? 
and you stepped into the light instead of running from the light, and, and there you are in Jesus, a whole new person. Remember the day of enlightenment? Remember that was like when you took your first breaths as a believer, your, 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 your first steps into this whole new life of having your world turned right side up by Jesus Christ. Remember your first communion? We're going to be taking communion in a little bit. Remember your first communion that you took after you gave your life to Christ? I do. I, I mean, I've been in, in church all my life, gone through the rituals of communion and stuff like that. But all of a sudden now, having been enlightened to the truth of the gospel, I remember holding that bread in my hand and that cup in my hand like, Jesus, you actually did this for me. And that trembling and the tears. Remember that? Remember taking communion when the gospel was alive and fresh? Remember your baptism? Remember that? Hey, the, my first baptism? Okay, the first time I ever saw like an adult like getting dunked in a tank kind of baptism was mine. I'd never seen them before until my baptism. And I still remember that day, that bold day where all of a sudden I'm like, I'm doing this not just because good parents got me baptized. I'm doing this because now I'm a follower of Christ and I'm going to take this step because I want to obey him and show the world that I obey. I don't care if I do look like a drowned rat on the other side, you know, and splash everybody on the stage. Don't do that anymore. Chase, don't do that anymore when you baptize. I'm just saying, but we, we come up and we look ridiculous. You know, we're, we don't care. Leave it, right? We're just so happy. Do you remember your first tithe? Remember the first time you gave? Now, these guys, it says they had things confiscated from them, right? But, but even that, it, they got ripped out of their hands, but they're like, you know what? <laughs> this world is worth far more than that stuff right there. I've got a greater reward coming my way. So remember the first time you actually proactively started giving back? Maybe this last offering that Mark just described was one of the first times you've ever actually given back. Doesn't it just feel great? You don't, like regret anything you've ever given for the sake of Christ. Remember when your friend came to know Christ and you couldn't believe that something so spectacular in your own soul is now shared by somebody you love so much. Remember when that other friend, when you told them about the gospel, not only didn't come to believe, but just started ridiculing you thinking you were ridiculous. But remember how you stood firm? Even if with tears, even if it was so hard. But remember how you stood firm? That's what he's describing. You stood firm. You made it. Remember when your heart started breaking for others? especially those who were suffering. Look how he's describing that. You, you actually sympathized with the prisoners, others that were even suffering more than you. I remember when I was a, a, an early believer, somehow I got this poster of all of these pastors from the, what was then the Soviet Union, now Russia, who had been imprisoned because of their bold stand for the gospel. And I had this poster. On my, I used to have this Coors poster on my wall. Took the Coors poster down. Put this poster of these jailed pastors. And every day, and sometimes in tears, I would, I would try to pronounce their names and pray for them, right? That There they are, very far from here. But they're giving it all for the gospel. Remember when you used to just really sympathize with those who are suffering for Jesus in other places. Do you know why all that was true about you when you remember your earlier days? Because you know Jesus. That's why those things were true. 
because you really know Jesus. You can't unsee what you now see and know to be true. The light is turned on. It's because your faith is the real deal. When you remember back, he's saying, you want hope when, when things are getting you know, a little weak? Keep looking every now and then in that rearview mirror as to how very real your faith is and how transformed your life is and how enlightened you are. Remember what God has done and it's gonna motivate you to keep going because it's real, it's legit. And the last thing that he's gonna point us to is to keep his focus on the finish line dream about the day that you're going to cross that finish line. Look, look what he says now in verse 36. Dream about this day for you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised for in a very little while, the coming one will come. We will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back and are destroyed but those who have faith and are saved. And then he's just going to bust into it in chapter 11. We are of those who have faith and are saved. But guys, those opening words, you need endurance, right? Do you guys need endurance? <laughs> you guys need endurance. Like those early days were euphoric and everything was new and everything was fresh and it was exhilarating, right? Well, now you've got some miles on your faith, right? There's, there's a little bit of distance as you look in that rearview mirror. And all of a sudden, maybe you're getting a little, a little gassed, getting a little hard. I want you to take a deep breath with me. If you need endurance, if you're feeling a little gassed, if you're feeling a little weary, okay, even physically, just, just take a big deep breath, Right? because I want you to hear something. Your faithfulness to God is not in vain. Your faithfulness to keep going, to keep persevering is not in vain. Guys, God told you boldly that the moment you came to Christ, the first steps you took in following Christ, he said to you, Look, this is not an easy path, right? It's, he, he wasn't he, fooling anybody. This is not an easy path. I'm calling you to a difficult path in following me. There's going to be trials. People aren't going to understand why you're following me. I, I'm calling you down a hard path. Trials will absolutely come your way, but I am coming back for you. This is all part of this promise that he gave to you. I'm going to be with you through those trials. And then I'm coming back. And where I'm taking you, oh man, you are going to love it. It, it will be worth it all. That's what he told you. So when you get, man, just wore out and the, and the path is long, sometimes we need to just kind of hit pause and gaze at that promised finish line and what lies on the other side. If you're newer to Veritas, I'm just going to let you know right now that unashamedly, a bunch of us are really into Lord of the Rings. All right, so I'm just going to tell you, and we haven't had a really good Lord of the Rings illustration drop for a long time, so I just feel duty-bound. This is my day. Um, so there's this one point that, that illustrates this so well, you guys. There's this one point where Pippin and Gandalf are, are by themselves and they're in this battle and things are going terribly and it looks like they're not gonna make it through 
and and it just it's a very dark moment. And in that moment, Pippin looks to Gandalf the wise, and Pippin says this, man, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. And at that point, Gandalf is just like gazing as if he's seeing it. So Pippin says, what? Gandalf, see what? You know, Gandalf kind of gets lost in the moment. See what? And Gandalf says, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. And Gandalf says, no, no, it isn't right? In that moment, he needed to gaze on that finish line and what's on the other side. And years later, Tolkien, the guy that wrote that beautiful little piece there, actually was able to lead a friend of his to Christ. And that friend ended up writing this a few years later. He said this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to to do, <laughs> right? When we look forward to the eternal world, it's not escapism. It's not just wishful thinking. It's what we're meant to do. It's what we are called to do. So guys, we need perseverance. We need to finish this race and finish strong. And so I'm saying, some have started on this race and have bolted. That's true. It's been true since Jesus was here on earth and Judas did it, right? It's always been true. Don't be discouraged by that. And if you are even considering such a path, now is the day of repentance. Don't fall into the terrifying hands of God. Fall into the loving arms of Christ right now. Be received by him. You've not gone too far. If you're here and listening and feel that stirring, you've not gone too far. Come to Christ right now. And for the rest of us, every now and then when we get tired, we get weary, we're seeing some other people bolt. Man, take a look in the rear view. No, what got me to this point, that's real stuff. My faith is real. My faith is genuine. I've been enlightened. I can't undo. I can't unsee what I've now seen. And begin to cast your gaze at the finish line. Dream about heaven. You guys dream about it. What's it going to be like? Let that fill you with strength to take the next step and the next step right here, right now. And beautifully, one of the most Important ways that Jesus gave us to always remember these things and to keep us going is actually communion, remembering the death of Christ. Because you know what he said? He said, do this. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And then he says this. He says, until I come again. (laughs) Right? He's wanting us to cast our mind on not the moment that he just gave his life for us, though that's there, but also let it be a reminder, I'm coming again for you, right? To cast our gaze heavenward. So if you will, um, let's close up our Bibles. Let's go to him in prayer. We're gonna be taking communion together. But before we do, let's stand together and 
Let's pray to him. Jesus, there are well, so many things we have yet to understand about your ways. And that's okay. <laughs> We've got a lifetime to learn. And when our last moment on this earth is done, there will still be things yet to learn and we'll still be growing. In this moment, though, Lord, I pray that what you do is bring hope to this room. And even for that person who might rightly suddenly be terrified by the words that you just gave us, Lord Jesus, as only you can do, replace that fear with love and faith and confidence with a welcome home. Jesus, we, we admit to you, we get kind of tired of this journey. It gets long. We want to see you. We want all the wrongs to be made right. We want all the tears to be wiped from our eyes. And that day is coming, but it's not this day. For this day, we need endurance. Would you use this moment, even in taking communion, to remember again that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. That when you came for us, you came with love for us. So much love for us that you gave your life for us. And have promised us that when that day comes, that we close our eyes in death, we will awaken again, alive, more alive than we've ever been. Help us to celebrate that, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. We pray in your name. Amen.